Hey, Zao fam. Um, I am here to read our scripture for the day. And I heard last week that people were making fun of me because I was maybe giggling a lot during our service. And so to prove to you that I can be a adult and say words that might make other children giggle, I will be reading um, from Genesis 38, 6 through 10. All right, here we go. Jacob, a wife from Ur, his firstborn, her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for her brother. But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went in to his brother's wife so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Amen. Can we all just give a round of acknowledgement and applause to Cameron for getting through that reading. <laughs> my name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I am the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church. Um, I'm super thrilled about this new series that we're starting today called It's Complicated. This is our take on a, a love and relationship series based on stories and relationships from the Bible. And as a uh, queer-affirming, um, feminist, anti-racist community, you might think that that would be a little hard to piece together. I don't know about y'all, but I know I've sat through some pretty cobic, misogynist, and racist series at churches, especially when it comes to love and relationship building, and especially when they're le leaning into the Bible. And I think that that causes some of us uh, to learn to kind of like um, retreat back into ourselves to, for really good reasons, um, kind of put up walls against the Bible and against religion when it comes to telling us anything important about how to live our lives with love um, in, in romantic relationships. And, uh, and that's, a really, uh, that's a really deep problem in the church and in our lives, because the Bible has a lot to say about important relationships, including romantic relationships, in our lives. And just because the church has abused and twisted the scriptures and used them to harm people um, doesn't mean that that's actually what the, the truth of the stories has to offer us. And so, uh, partly as a practice of healing, in addition to a practice of wisdom and seeking the wisdom of the scriptures, we're going to be intentionally and thoughtfully going in through the next six weeks into the biblical spaces that offer us um, words of hope uh, and challenge and affirmation and encouragement in our relationships and our love. Now, in order to do that in the Bible, in our American church context, with a queer, feminist, anti-racist lens, we have to do a lot of things really differently than uh, the folks who have uh, done it in those ways that have been hurtful. And so just to give you a little bit of insight into how we're intentional about that, I want to tell you a little bit about process. So feminist readings of the Bible, um, well, it's, 
With feminist readings of the Bible, it's hard uh, not to have a more feminist reading than some of the traditional readings. There's so much misogyny, not only that worked its way into the text, but also that has shaped the interpretation of the text. That actually, like, it's a win just letting women talk about the Bible. <laughs> so uh, in, in the scriptures, you can see it embedded in some of the ways that scripture has shaped itself but also the ways that the church has interpreted. The default towards the viewpoint of men is astounding. In the history of scriptural interpretation, men have been given space and have taken space um, to the exclusion of women and not men. Um, and, and so a lot of these interpretations that we take as standard came out of that atmosphere. And so just bringing uh, women into the text first in interpretation and in conversation, looking to women's scholars, um, looking to women's experiences, including people who are not women but also not men, um, into the conversation is a huge leap forward. And also, women made, made a huge mark on this holy text. And so drawing out the stories of women in the Bible is a way to have a feminist approach to biblical storytelling. Getting a queer lens on the text um, is a little bit more complicated because queerness is obscured in the scriptures. But since the time that there have been people, there have been gays. And so when we read a text emphatic about how David and Jonathan were like best friends, like not just best friends, but like best friends, all the queers in the audience perk our ears up because we've all had a best friend. So when we engage in queerness in the Bible, we have to look a little bit harder. We have to take more leaps of faith. We have to see ourselves in the text. And so we will do that in this series. In June in particular, we're going to be focusing on folks that we perceive to be queer and trans in the Bible. In terms of queer relationship, we're going to focus on David and Jonathan and Ruth and Naomi, who are the two, those two couples are the most often speculated to be queer. Um, and then for our anti-racist lens, this is a little bit more complex because race in our current construction of American white supremacist racist ideology didn't exist in the same way at that time. Um, that their social constructions were different in that space. And so there are parallels though with ethnic, national, and tribal identity. And in those narratives of, of ethnic, national, and tribal identity, there are narratives of superiority and inferiority that shaped and supported systems of oppression and evil. So we have a lot to learn there, a lot to be critical of there. And then we'll also have a critical eye towards the ways those modern systems have affected our readings, as well as how historic white supremacy has abused the text and turned it into something else. So for all of this, I'll be defaulting whenever possible to scholars who read these scriptures from their own experiences uh, as women, as people of color, and or as queer people. And uh, I'm preaching this as a queer and trans AFAB person who is perceived and treated daily as a woman. Um, I'm also a white person, and so while I sit at the feet of teachers of color, I know that that limits my own perspective. I am thrilled that in this series, we will also be hearing directly from Cameron, um, who will be preaching from his own experience of queerness and as a trans man of color. But 
Cameron and I uh, will not have perfect or complete readings of the text. No one does. That's why we all have to be in conversation with one another. One of my favorite things about this format is that you all get to contribute to the sermon. Unfortunately, I don't get to read it till afterward, but I see Cameron um, interacting and being thrilled um, with the conversations that occurred during the sermon, and that's really amazing. And so I want you to speak your experiences, your interpretations, your learnings into the comments thread so that we can have what I think is the holiest um, encounter with the text, which is dialogue, storytelling, and sharing. And honestly, even though we won't have perfect or complete readings of the text, it is amazing, amazing, how the text seems to change when we alter who is reading it and who gets to interpret what the stories are about. So let's dive in. Our first story is Tamar. Now, Tamar was actually the inspiration in some ways for this sermon series because I mentioned her offhand last week in the sermon about Song of Songs, that erotic biblical poetry. Um, and we were talking about how her text, her story, has been co-opted um, by anti-sex uh, anti puritanical um, culture that wants to control bodies, especially women's bodies. But her story is awesome, and it does deserve its own sermon, as I mentioned last week. So we're just taking this, this opportunity um, to dwell in her story and her wisdom. Most people would have you believe that this story is about a guy named Onan. If you've heard of the sin of Onan, or Onanism, then you've, you've heard the, a piece of this story. But I want you to take that, and I want you to put it over here. We're going to return to the ways this story has been misinterpreted or abused. Um, but for now, we are going to set that aside and encounter this story about Tamar. It's not about Onan. Onan dies like 10 verses into the chapter and still somehow gets away with the headline. Um, it's not about Judah, which would in some ways make more sense. He is one of the 12 patriarchs of Israel. Um, he's, he is a really important person in the lineage of the Jewish identity and Jewish people. Um, but truly, even though both of those men are in this story, this is the story of Tamar. It's in Genesis chapter 38. And as somebody mentioned in our sermon on Job, um, in the comments, in that rich discussion, sometimes it helps with some of these stories to begin with the phrase, once upon a time. Now, I, I'm sharing that not to say that this didn't happen, um, but to say that at some level it doesn't matter whether it happened or whether it happened in the ways that it's described. Uh, there are a lot of stories in the Bible that contain truth but aren't concerned with fact. And so, for instance, uh, I'm going to tell you this story where God strikes two people dead, and we don't believe that God actually does that. That's not how it works. That's... Um, inconsistent with the character of God that we see uh, portrayed through the wholeness of Scripture, but it's to communicate very quickly uh, a point about where God stands on someone's behavior. And so you can think about it in these more epic terms, um, in these more mythological terms, if it's helpful, that God is trying to tell you a story, and it begins with once upon a time. So once upon a time, there was a man, Judah, and he was married to a woman named Shua. And the two of them together had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now Judah was one of the 12 patriarchs of Israel, and so 
God, Yahweh, had parceled up the land and given each of the 12 patriarchs um, a plot of land and divided it so that all was made fair. And that meant that the land was being stewarded by Judah and his lineage. And so he had to really thoughtfully uh, choose a wife for his eldest son, Ur. And that was just the way of things at the time. Judah, was, you know, the man of the household, uh, orchestrated everyone's well-being, um, which meant that he got to make decisions about, about marriage and property and all these kinds of things. And, and, the, and marriage was really an economic system by which land would be passed on and wealth, by which people could secure their future and their well-being and their survival. So Judah orchestrates a marriage between Ur and a woman named Tamar. Now Ur sucked. Ur was a wicked man once upon a time, and so God struck him dead for his wickedness. That Tamar without a husband, and because of the way that marriage contracts were constructed, she had nowhere to go from there. She, uh, she was a widow, and that meant that she wasn't eligible to enter into another family um, under, under another lineage, and Judah had to provide for her well-being. There was a law at this time called Levrite marriage. The Levrite marriage law, which kind of literally means the brother-in-law marriage law, is, uh, says that if, um, if two people are married and they're heterosexually married, because that's the only construct that this society has at this point, uh, and the man dies without leaving a male heir for the well-being of his widow and for the passing on of his lineage, um, one of his brothers must, must have sex with his widow and provide a male heir. So somebody needed to give Tamar a son, somebody within this family and this, within this lineage. And again, that could super bum us out because that's not exactly how or why we marry or have sex for the most part anymore. Uh, but it was hugely important to Tamar's well-being, to her inclusion and her place within this family system. And so, uh, so she was owed a son. And if she didn't get a son, she wasn't entitled to any of the inheritance. She wasn't entitled to land. She really had no place to be. So uh, Judah does the right thing. And he said, in this construct, and he says, um, all right, Tamar, you and Onan have to work this out. He's my second born, uh, and he is going to give you uh, a son. And you're going to work it out until you get pregnant and get a son. Onan didn't want to do that. Onan was like, hey, listen, my, my crappy older brother died, and he was entitled to twice as much inheritance as me and my brother. So uh, essentially, if Ur got an heir, and if, if Onan uh, gave a son to Tamar, that son would, would get Ur's part of the inheritance, not Onan's. So it wouldn't be in his line anymore. It would be in his deceased brothers. So Onan's like, okay, if Ur uh, has... has lineage, then he gets two times the inheritance. I get one portion of it. My younger brother, Shayla, gets one portion of the inheritance. I go away with a quarter of what my dad owns. 
But if Ur just mysteriously doesn't heir, if Tamar is unable to have a son for some mysterious reason, then nothing goes to her or her line. Uh, and then Shayla and I get to split it halvesies. So Yahtzee for Onan. So Onan has a lot financially at stake at not providing for Tamar, who would end up with more than what he would have it, by, by virtue of this... Um, patrilineal earth land sharing experience. So Onan is like, I know what I'm going to do. We're going to go for it. I'm going to, I'm going to have sexy time with Tamar. Oh yeah, we got this. And then at the last minute, I'm going to pull out. Text says he spills his semen on the ground. And again, this is where a lot of people get really hung up and make this whole text about Onan or about um, semen or about masturbation or contraception like they go off into these other places and again we're putting a pin in that and we can come back and deal with that later but what's really happening here is that Onan is shirking his responsibility to Tamar he is robbing her he is stealing from her so that he can have more wealth because he doesn't want her to have any well God didn't like that God didn't like that, and so once upon a time, God didn't like that, and God struck Onan dead. The text says that, that God responded to Onan's unfaithfulness by, by striking him dead, removing him entirely from this story. And so Judah goes, okay, I had three sons. I have one son, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Sandra Richter, who wrote the book Epic of Eden, uh, highly recommend, um, said, re remarks about how instead of thinking that maybe there was something wrong with his sons, Judah is really quick to say, like, there's got to be something wrong with Tamar. And so Judah wants to exclude Tamar, and he's like, okay, uh, Tamar, yeah, no, I know that you're totally entitled to your share of things, and I could just give it to you, but obviously I'm not going to do that. Um, and we know that we need to get you a male heir so that the land can be passed on and the wealth and whatever. Um, so theoretically, you would um, get a male heir via my son, Shayla, uh, but he's not old enough yet, so why don't you just hang tight? In the meantime, get out of my house. Like, go live in your parents' basement. Um, they did not have basements at the time, but she was sent back to her father's home, which demonstrates that... Judah wasn't interested in caring for her economic well-being. There's no reason she shouldn't have been living in his house and still a part of his family that she was adopted into by way of marriage. But he sends her away to live with her family of origin and says, you just hang tight. Someday I'll have a son who's old enough to give you a male heir. So time passes, and it's never going to happen. And Tamar knows this. And she realizes that time has passed and Shayla is, is beyond of age um, and it's, it's not going to happen. And eventually Shua, uh, who if you recall is Judah's wife, Tamar's mother-in-law, passes away. And after Shua dies, um, Tamar hears that Judah is headed to another town to do some sheep shearing. He's going to go shear his sheep uh, which in this case is not a euphemism. And he goes to a new town with a friend 
to, to do this. And Tamar hears that he's going. And so Tamar's like, okay, I'm sick of this. I'm tired of waiting on all of these men to do what is right. I'm going to take what's mine. And so she goes, um, and she takes, the, the text describes her taking off her widow's garment um, and putting on the garments of a sex worker. And so she's taking on a different role. She's moving from her, the social location she was assigned to another social location um, that, that many women in her space were assigned. And she moves into this new role. She puts a veil over her face and is no longer recognizable as Tamar to Judah. So she dresses up as a sex worker um, and she goes to this town that Judah is in and she waits by the side of the road for Judah. When he comes along, he propositions her. And uh, Will Gaffney, an incredible um, womanist biblical scholar, writes in the Womanist Midrash that this demonstrates how normative sex work was for men in ancient Israel. That, you know, Judah's wife had died. It wasn't considered adultery. He had sexual needs. They were going to get met. Um, by sex workers, and that, that that was normative, but that one of the assumptions was that sex workers were not Israelites. And this is where that um, not quite racialized, but def definitely ethnic and nationalized um, system of oppression comes in, because sex work was deemed to be the work of the other, of women of other ethnicities. And he goes assuming that he's, he is hiring um, a sex worker from outside of his national identity. So he goes, and this is a normal thing for him to do. Will, Will Gaffney maybe takes a little bit of a low blow at, uh, at Judah saying that he's either out of practice or not very good at it because he forgot to bring payment. Um, but he forgot to bring payment. He, was, he, he said, oh, you know, I, I'll pay you a kid, a young goat. Um, I'll pay you a young goat to, uh, for your services, um, but I don't have that with me. And so Tamar, um, in disguise still, says, great, no, that's perfect. Why don't you give me your signet, cord, and staff? Now, I don't have a signet and cord. Uh, I don't usually carry a staff, so I needed to look into this of what that actually meant. Um, staff is pretty straightforward, but a signet and cord is, is kind of like a necklace that a person would wear um, that they could, that had like a seal on it that was basically their signature. So it's almost like saying, yeah, totally, man, that's cool. Just give me um, your car keys and your driver's license. And so she gets this collateral from him that identifies him as who he is. And he says, great, I'm going to send you this, uh, this baby goat later, and we'll be squared away. Thank you for your services. And he goes on his merry way. Well, Tamar's plan worked because what she was aiming to do was get pregnant. She wanted a male heir. That was the thing she was entitled to so that she could be part of this lineage and get what would make her financially secure. And she did. So she became pregnant. And the townspeople, after a few months, took notice. And they said, she's pregnant. Somebody better tell Judah because she's supposed to be this chaste widow She's in his family because she married in. He's responsible for her, and she's been stepping out. The text actually calls her a whore, um, 
well, the townspeople in the text do that. And again, Will Gaffney comes in with this incredible commentary about how even though sex work was normative because it was considered outside of the cultural norms, it shows this tension within Israel about sex work, that it is normative for men to partake in outside of, of the circle, um, that basically it's services of women of color outside, that would be our closest equivalent, um, that, that white men were allowed to partake in. And if uh, a woman who was considered within kind of the, the dominant ethnic identity um, were to partake, or, or participate or, um, or perform sex work, that she would be considered not a, a sex worker, this is part of the culture, but a whore. And it's also kind of a play on words because they're, they're not actually accusing her of sex work, they're accusing her of adultery or of having sex beyond her station or going outside of the norms of getting what is hers. Um, but she did actually uh, play the part of a sex worker in the story. And so there are all these layers here. Anyway, so the townspeople are freaking out and they're like, slut, tell her father-in-law. And so they, they bring her uh, out. Uh, Judah gets so mad that he, righteously angry, why? I don't know how this harms him, uh, that she's pregnant. Um, and actually that's not true. It would have to do again with his lineage and all that kind of stuff. But he gets very angry, and he goes to the harshest version of the law, and he says, she should be burned for this. So they drag her out into, uh, into open space to be burned. And she says, this is, this is fine. This is fine. I just want you all to know who the father of my baby is. Um, can someone please come claim their staff and signet and cord? <laughs> And Judah is like, oh no, huh? Tamar says, the father of my child is the owner of these items. Come get your driver's license, Judah. And he is shamed. And not because he participated in sex work or, uh, or anything like that, but because he owed her an heir. And he didn't give it to her over and over and over again. He didn't provide her her rightful place. He didn't provide her security and equity in the family. And so she had to take it. And there's this beautiful moment where Judah, one of the patriarchs, Judah, who can do whatever he wants, Judah stands there and says, she is more righteous than I. Judah finally understands the weight of what he's been doing and the power that Tamar has in claiming her justice, claiming her space. The, the fact that he put her through that, that she had to go to such lengths to get what she deserved, which was a place in the family and equity. She is more righteous than I. The text says that he acknowledges that, and then specifically that he does not have sex with her again. Now that may be to protect Judah and Judah's purity here, but it's probably more to say Tamar didn't become an object to him again. He didn't use her again, even though he could have. She was giving birth to his children, after all, in his family, but he didn't. Tamar scraped and scrapped her way into her rightful place in the family. She gave birth to twins, 
And in those, uh, in those twins, she not only received her inheritance, but she also became a part of the line to David, who became the greatest king of Israel. So tell me that story is about Onan. Come on. Tamar is an example of what it means to fight for equity in relationship. Tamar is an example that relationship cannot exist where people are treated as property. Tamar shows us what it means to have a feminist orientation towards all of these laws. That yes, the laws were unjust, and yes, the society was jacked up. And also, Tamar was going to do everything in her power to show up fully and to not let the men around her deny her her place. Now, this is probably the least traditional um, kind of coupling that we're going to talk about here. Because even though Tamar is coupled with Ur and with Onan and in some weird ways with Judah, Tamar has to find her own place because the world isn't providing for her the way that it ought to. True love, true relationship cannot exist without mutuality and equity. Miguel de la Torre, um, who wrote Lily Among Thorns, I referenced this a bit last week, argues that in the way that we are called to be, which is to offer ourselves to one another in love. In the ways that intimate relationship, especially marriage, are described in scriptures, including in the New Testament and all of these letters to the early churches. There is a lot of talk of, of giving of oneself or submitting oneself to another. And De La Torre argues strongly that you cannot give yourself to another if you are not fully autonomous and fully self-owned. You cannot give what is not yours. And Tamar shows us what it means to be fully in ownership of herself. Even though she's subject to the misogyny of her culture, Tamar is in charge of Tamar. And she is bringing the fullness of herself even to these relationships where they are not offering her equity. Tamar deserves better. Women deserve better. And God's intention is for women to be fully alive, fully in charge of themselves, fully um, autonomous, in order that they can submit meaningfully to another. And that's not just for women. Men, non-binary folk, we are all called to have a deep sense of self, to know who we are, and to bring that into a space and not allow anyone to deny it. Any, any other person could have simply given up at any point in that story. And Tamar shows us a fight, a fight to be seen, a fight to be recognized, a fight for her place as an equitable partner in a family. And she is called righteous. Judah, the patriarch, says she is more righteous than I. It is righteous to show up to a relationship and claim what is yours. It is righteous to submit ourselves in love only when we have the space to be fully ourselves. 
And it is righteous for people to have economic equity in relationship. And when there is an imbalance, that is unholy. When someone is dependent fully and, uh, and subject then to the whims of their more economically dominant partner, that must be remedied. There must be protections in place for the economically vulnerable because it is righteous to fight for your equal place. And it is unrighteous, unholy, it is sinful to deny another person fullness of survival, of space, of authority in the family. These are the lessons of Tamar, not of Onan, not of Juna, but Tamar, who, uh, you know, cards on the table might just be one of my favorite biblical characters, so that's why I get carried away. Tamar is incredible. And what has happened to this text is that Tamar has gotten erased from it. It becomes a story about Onan. A story about Onan spilling his seed on the ground. I gotta say, I, I, got, I got a little nauseous doing research for this this week. Because I've always known uh, about the, the interpretations, the misinterpretations of this text. But I've never really gotten deep into it. It's messed up. People have interpreted this text through a misogynist lens to say that this is evidence that um, no one should ever um, masturbate or have self-pleasure. Specifically, men should not do that. Um, to say that the, the entire purpose of sex is for procreation and that this text proves it. And to say that uh, the real sin of Onan, this was the one that really got me, there was a, a Catholic reading by a man who said that the real sin of Onan was against sex itself by denying it its true mission of providing life and against it was a sin of Onan against his own future potential offspring, denying it life. No mention of Tamar. Are they reading the same Bible I'm reading? This is the problem with having a, a small selection of people, especially people in power, interpreting a text for everyone. This is why we need text to be in conversation with the wholeness of the community. Because no, you can't have a scripture like Song of Songs that lovingly and artfully and beautifully describes a young woman touching herself in pleasure, anticipating her lover coming to visit her, and then say, Oh, the whole thing with Tamar? Yeah, that was about how Onan shouldn't really jerk off. That's separating intimacy and, and joy and connection and saying, oh, those things don't matter. What matters is lineage. What matters is preserving semen, which is holy. Who cares about that woman he's putting it in? What matters is controlling women's bodies and using them for the purposes of men. That's the interpretation of this text. That's the sin of Onan, not seeing Tamar, not providing an equitable world, not showing up for fullness, not showing up for justice. And that sin is repeated over and over again when interpretations of this text rob Tamar of what is hers, her story, her story of righteous pursuit of justice. And so, what is our first lesson to be learned in our relationship series looking at the Bible? It is not that masturbation is wrong or that you need to keep your seed, you know, under a tight lid 
It is not that contraception is wrong and that, that sex is only for the purpose of procreation according to a, a, a patrilineal exchange of goods. The lesson that we have here is believe women. The lesson we have here is that justice fought for is righteousness. The lesson we have here is that the only way to have a family, a true loving family, is when each person within it has the right to be there, the right to survive, and has enough. I don't think Tamar would have messed with any of these men if she had had enough to survive if she had had enough to thrive, if she had had the kind of inheritance to which she was entitled. We can only have loving relationships when we have equity, when we have mutuality, when we have trust. And when you seek after that which you have been denied, you are more righteous than even those powerful people who denied it to you. Will you pray with me? God of all, God of Tamar, God, we thank you for preserving Tamar's story. We thank you for teaching it to us and shaping our experience of you. We thank you for giving us examples of inspiring women who seek justice. God, we repent of our sins and the sins of generations before us who have denied Tamar, who have denied women, who have put men in their place, or who have tried to take control of bodies through narratives that are anti-body, anti-sex, anti-women. God, we pray that we would be faithful as we read these texts, that they would inspire us to pursue justice and equity in our relationships that we would learn what it means to be whole ourselves so that we can offer ourselves wholly to another. God, you are good. May your truth shine through each of these texts over the next six weeks. In your name we pray. Amen.